they have a saying that there's nothing like the happiness of a samana. At the same time, there's nothing like the suffering of a samana. We all know what the suffering of a samana is like. So when we come into the robes, we have to completely change our lifestyle. Many of our habits, desires, ways of behavior, we have to change. Often have a feeling of frustration. Training a stubborn mind. Trying to follow the Buddhist path. We often have to go without things that we want, material things. Go without certain things of the lay life, sexual relations, eating when you want, sleeping when you want, and so on. We have to go without a lot of mental stimulation that we formerly probably clung on to too much. We have less opportunity for that as seminars. So there's a lot of frustration that we have to bear with. But then the happiness of a samana is something unique in the world. But it's often something you have to appreciate over time because it's so subtle. The happiness of living in the forest away from the hustle and bustle of the city and urban areas. It can be a challenge because of the weather and the simplicity of living in a kuti without much convenience. But you have the happiness of gaya viveka, seclusion. And as you appreciate that more through time as you practice, That in itself can often be a cause for very peaceful, contented states of mind to arise. Just appreciating the lack of confusion and agitation living in the forest. Or the simplicity of the requisites. You know, at first that can be a challenge, but as you practice more, it becomes a great source of contentment, not having to look after many things, concern yourself with many things. Being at ease, whatever comes one's way. <coughs> content with little, content 
when there's a lot, because one doesn't need a lot. So that's always a bonus when there's a lot of things. Maybe it gives you a chance to practice dana, share with others. But even if there's a little, only a little, we can be content and appreciate the happiness of not having to be concerned about looking after things, dealing with a lot of material possessions. There's the happiness of sila. Sometimes in the beginning of the practice you only notice the happiness of sila when you come across people who don't have sila or not a very refined level of sila. You notice their agitation, even the harmful things they say and do. It helps you to reflect back and see the benefits and the happiness of your own sila. And the happiness of living in the Sangha with Kalyanamitta, people who keep the same kind of sila as you, follow the Vinaya and the support you get from that. Again, it's something you often only appreciate over time. Sometimes in our bhikkhu life we go off and stay on our own. And that may have a use as well. But sometimes the main reflection is you realize the value of teachers, sangha, kalyanamitta. Obviously the higher kinds of happiness of a samana the mind that is free from the hindrances and ultimately the mind that is free from defilement. These are, take even more time to experience. But we can all experience at least temporarily a mind free from the hindrances. This is why we meditate and what keeps us going in the meditation. Even if it's only brief glimpses. Even the hindrances, in a way, can be useful to us because they show us suffering in the cause of suffering. The hindrances, they say, are like five kinds of illness that your mind falls into. Like any illness, you don't want it, it's unpleasant. When you manage to rid yourself of that illness, you feel very good. The hindrances are like that. And they often they prompt us to practice. Because when you see the dukkha of hindrances, well, the wise person doesn't just surrender and give in and give up. They want to practice all the more to overcome them. So even though we live simply and dedicate our lives to the development of the path, the Ariyamaga, the path that ennobles this human mind and frees it from suffering, 
we have to practice with patience and diligence and be ready to accept that it takes time. But we, even as we are practicing, we can appreciate some of these simple kinds of happiness and they kind of grow on you. Can even uh, just going to a quiet place, see, visiting a, another monastery or even just a, a natural quiet place, pity and sukha can arise because that place is peaceful and your mind already inclines towards peace. We can have pity and sukha arise when we meet peaceful people, other samanas usually, but not always. Particularly teachers, teachers who practice well, we meet them and pity and sukha can arise listening to them or just seeing their good example or even just hearing about other practitioners reading biographies or listening to talks again pity and sukha can arise and these are all a sign of the mind inclining towards the peace of a samana and the peace of dhamma comes through understanding more about the path and letting go of those hindrances and preparing the mind for even letting go of defilement. As the mind inclines towards the Dhamma, then this kind of peace and happiness becomes clearer. <coughs> even if it's not there all the time, we know it's available is an opportunity for us to keep practicing and experiencing more of it. And it's so simple. You don't need to have anything or buy anything or go anywhere to get it. As they say, Nibbana itself is here all the time. It's just our mind doesn't see it, doesn't experience it. It's just there because it's the, the way things are, it's the truth. But because our mind loses its way, gets caught up in the hindrances, then it doesn't see or experience. Letting go of greed, anger, delusion, so it doesn't experience Nibbana. Well, it's not a place that you have to go to or get to. It's more something that we will experience through clearing the mind of everything that stands in the way. All the obstacles, the hindrances, the attachment to views. And in brief, uh, the five focuses of identity or the five upadana khandhas, this body, this mind that we identify with so strongly. This is our problem. This is where we attach out of habit and where delusion forms with a sense of self. And the way of the world is a whole culture surrounding us reinforces that from day one when we're born through till now. 
the whole world is pushing for the sense of self, promoting it as an idea, as a concept, through behavior, through mental behavior, physical behavior, through views, and the idea of self, the individual, based around identity, identification with the five candors, is not challenged very much, except maybe in spiritual circles, particularly in Buddhism. We just take it for granted that there's a self, and then we act accordingly, and then end up suffering. Part of that sense of self is established because we compare this body and mind with others. We have that sense of difference and we actually promote that, encourage that, again with individuality. So we get a lot of conflict in the world conflict just over views, opinions, preferences, politics, spheres of influence, power, wealth. We compete with others, we rival others because of the sense of self. And it's the more we have a sense of self and compete and rival with others, the worse it becomes, the more suffering we have. In the worst extreme, we actually end up physically harming each other, fighting on an individual level or even having wars between groups of people, all based on this sense of self. And the Buddha proved that you know, if you see through that delusion, there's no need to rival or compete with others for material things or over views ideals, beliefs, all that dissolves when you see that the nature of the five khandhas is anicca, dukkha, anatta. But to do that you have to practice turning your attention back in on yourself, on what you call self, these five khandhas, and investigate. Which is the purpose of the samana life, what we're doing on every level. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. We're learning to redirect, incline the mind back to look at the five candors more closely rather than taking them for granted and seeing that when we are deluded and attached to them, then the basis for suffering. And we're teaching the mind through mindfulness, wise reflection to see that. Sometimes in the beginning we just have to go on trust, on belief, accepting what the Buddha or our teachers like Lumpur Cha said because of their wisdom seems to make sense. But over time we're proving it through the practice as we develop our ability to maintain mindfulness, to observe, to reflect, internalize, the wisdom that we've heard, reflect on it until it becomes bhavana maya panya, where you're actually knowing, 
seeing the way these candors are rather than just believing in it as a theory. You're actually seeing them as anicca dukkha anatta. And the reason the mind will let go of its attachment and delusion is because it sees the way things are. It's not something we can force, push through with willpower. It's often in the beginning of practice is another cause of suffering because we understand ahead intellectually maybe what the Buddha taught, what the teachers taught. We get the techniques, we know what we're supposed to do and we want a quick ending to the suffering. So we try and push it through. <clears throat> but you can't let go as an act of will. You can't force the mind just to drop delusion. It has to be seen for what it is. So you have to keep creating the correct causes and conditions for the mind to let go, give up craving give up attachment, give up becoming, give up birth. Give up attachment to the five candors. Come through clearly seeing the way they are by repeatedly bringing up mindfulness, calming the mind, bringing up mindfulness. Keeping the Vinaya because that purifies the mindfulness, calms us down enough that mindfulness can operate properly and in with the seal of the samadhi, panya can arise, true knowledge and vision of the way things are. It's a process that we have to be willing to go through. But uh, the more you appreciate the happiness of a samana's life, then it's easier to do it. Obviously, in the beginning, we have to be very patient putting up with the frustrations, the difficulties, and that's where we rely on our patience, endurance, and our wisdom. As I was saying, even the hindrances sometimes can give rise to wisdom and understanding, even though in themselves they're unpleasant distracting, disturbing, even painful. <coughs> most of us have had a lot of doubt before we even come into the monastery. We have doubts about life, what we're doing, what real happiness is. Some of that doubt is kind of mixed up with wisdom. Some of it is just a hindrance of doubt. But it can be a stimulus for wanting to know further, well, what is the, the answer to these questions? Even though the doubt itself, as a hindrance, just takes us round in circles, weakens our mindfulness, weakens our wisdom. But just as an initial prompt to get us to practice, to read Dhamma, listen to Dhamma, to try the practice, even doubt can be useful. Or seen the pain of anger or lust, worries. 
even though we can't let go of them yet, that can be a stimulus to put in more effort to the practice. And dukkha leads to the arising of sata. Sata in the way of Buddhism isn't just belief. It's belief as a factor for training the mind, developing, cultivating wholesome qualities. Leads on to wiriya, effort. Wiriya is the wiriya to establish sati, mindfulness. Mindfulness gives you the clarity to see the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind. And a lot of our practice in the beginning is just that much. You can't fully abandon kilesas that stimulate unwholesome states of mind, but you can recognize them for what they are. And we keep practicing so that we gradually reduce that identification with them. So even though we are putting effort into bringing up mindfulness to overcome dukkha, we're not letting the mind fall into further dukkha by identifying with these negative states that we're starting to become mindful of. So I just have to be very patient and accept more greed, more anger, more delusion in all the different ways coming up. But as you establish mindfulness, you can't help but at least sometimes notice they arise, they cease. What arises, what ceases is not a a person, a being, a self, as Ajahn Chah used to say. That insight ultimately is what takes you all the way to Nibbāna. Just in the beginning it's not established strongly, it's not clear, it comes and goes. But that's how we reflect, these are not self, not a being. They're mental states, experiences that arise from causes and then they cease. The candors, all the candors are like this. And you, you start to see one, then you know them all. You see one leaf, you know them all. This is why Lumpur Chah said, you know, in the end the mind of the practitioner gets to the point where everything is Dhamma, everything is teaching Dhamma to the mind. Because all experience, other than Nibbana, it's all what we call Sankata Dhamma, it's all conditioned phenomena. This world, the material world, or our own mental world, everything's arising and ceasing according to causes and conditions. There's not a being, a person in any of it. So you see one part and you start to see the rest. But in the beginning we have to focus on what's most obvious. And sometimes we can see moods, thoughts arising, passing away. But if you're in doubt, Lumpur Chao always said, come back to the body. That's why they, probably why the Buddha made it the first foundation of mindfulness, Gaya Gada Sati. Because it's that which is more coarse, more solid, easier to focus the mind on, the breath 
the 32 parts, the four postures, the four elements, the supagamatana, and so on. Coming back to the, get to know the body as it is, as a body, as Rupa Dhamma, rather than my body, me. This leads, as we keep focusing with mindfulness back on the body, with mindfulness, so with that sense of equanimity, detachment, neither for nor against. And this is where wisdom starts to arise. This is where we see non-self. You can't help but notice the changes of a body, the aging, the sickness, the need to eat, drink, the need to rest, the need to go to the toilet, and so on. It's just changing all the time according to nature. We start looking at that more closely. It's constantly telling us this is not a self. It's there, it's something that you can be mindful of, but it's not something you can own or control. Again, this can give rise to the subtle happiness of samadhi. States of calm where you see, feel the mind very detached, separate from the body by contemplating it. Knowing it for what it is, not deluded about the nature of this body. You're made up of the four elements. Whether it's your own body, other people's bodies, or just the material world around us. So often in the beginning of practice, we just con concentrate, focus on very simple things. Like you live in the forest. You walk around the forest every day. You can see the changing nature of the physical phenomena. The weather, the trees, they drop leaves and branches. They become mulch in the forest floor constantly breaking down. You know, when you sleep, sweep the leaves in the summer, the leaves are so dry. If you pick them up in your hand, often they just crumble into powder straight away. Straight away you can see them as impermanent, just returning to a different form of the four elements. Because these four elements are Sankata Dhamma, and they condition things that change around. Even more moist, rubbery kind of leaves, they still break down, just take longer. Like here in the forest, we have termites. So you see, termites will come up and eat the underside of leaves and twigs. Even tools that we sometimes people forget tools in the forest like a hoe or a spade with a wooden handle. You come back only a week or two later and already the termites are starting to eat the handle. Or stumps of trees. And now the monastery has been here long enough that you can actually have been here and seen a, a tree stump turn into a termite mound. Eventually it will be gone. 
So often we'd start with very simple things like that. Just the, the daily process of food, preparing food, eating food, going to the toilet, throwing away food scraps. Nothing lasts. And these candors, this body, and everything that we know and attach to is based on this body, doesn't last. What doesn't last is not a enduring, substantial self. Or we come back to the body as you know, it's a source of illness, aging, and ultimately death. So when you see a corpse in the body, in the forest of a deer or a kangaroo, you just contemplate what is happening to the flesh, the bones, the blood. Often it doesn't last long enough, other animals come and eat, but sometimes you see one decomposing. That's a chemical process, There's bacteria working on the flesh, chemical changes going on. Just the same as your own body would be if you were in the, lying dead in a forest somewhere. This thing that we identify with so strongly, that's its nature. Sanitya, dukkha, anatta. As you become more peaceful, you know, just staying in the forest, it teaches you these kind of truths. If you just keep your eyes open, you see the cycles of life and death, the changing elements. You just see with a lot of rain how earth is washed away. So we get our ditches get filled up with earth, leaves and stuff. Wherever there's been some excavation, the earth is washed down from the bank. This is the way nature of the world constantly changing. Then you hear the news about earthquakes, whole towns can disappear, collapse from an earthquake. Even a chedi with Buddha relics can collapse from an earthquake. This is the nature of the world we live in. If you think about it, it's almost like we're being bullied. And sometimes they use that word, death bullies us. That death doesn't leave anyone alone. Because of the nature of these candors as being impermanent, they're just destined to break apart. But nobody's doing that to us. You know, if we're still fixated on other people as bullies or people we don't like, people we don't wander around, that's such a superficial understanding of things. Even if you get everything the way you want, or you're living totally isolated, no one else can bully you. Death is going to bully you because it won't leave you alone. It's just waiting. It's only a matter of time. You know, you think about the worst threat somebody who hates you could make. It still pales into insignificance compared with the threat of death. That's the only inevitable, absolute certainty of life. We will die. Good people die, bad people die. Rich people, poor people, men, women. 
Death is like the worst bully of all, waiting around to get us all. Whether it's this life, last life, next life, that truth doesn't change. So we can contemplate that. Maranaru Sati, just recollect the impermanence of life all the time. And it breaks through delusion, it breaks through the intoxication of attachment with the five candors, with pleasure, pleasures of the senses, thoughts, views, opinions, physical pleasure, mental pleasure, all the things that we attach to, identify with, are put into perspective when you practice Moranānusati. And the mind, as you bring up mindfulness, goes to calm, stillness. It's one very valuable recollection that m many people have found brings them stillness. It can only bring you to upajara samadhi because it's a reflection based on a theme, a word, a concept. But then the practitioners, they'll de develop another object from there. When the mind becomes still, maybe develop anapanasati. It's perhaps the most common. It's a very good introduction to meditation, even just thinking about death thinking about the impermanence of your life, this body, the things you own, people you know. You're born alone, you die alone. You think it through, the mind starts to shed various hindrances and attachments already. If you really are mindful of the concept, the idea of death over and over again, everything else is set aside. The mind goes still, goes quiet. When it's still, then you can see the way things are. You can contemplate from stillness. As thoughts come up, you know mm, this body is going to die. The things I'm thinking about are impermanent. The thought is an impermanent mental state comes and goes. The feelings associated with different experience come and go. As mindfulness improves and this sense of stillness deepens, then even physical pain, which probably is one of our biggest obstacles, can be seen as an impermanent phenomena, vetana. It arises, it ceases, it changes. As you're sitting, if you contemplate from stillness, you can't escape vetana for very long, but you can see it as impermanent. What's impermanent is unstable, changing, it's dukkha. It's not self. It's not a being or a person. It's just part and parcel of candors. Being born, you're going to get some dukkha waiting now. But applying mindfulness and insight from a place of stillness, the mind can be able to observe without being for or against, neither clinging to pleasure nor clinging to pain. So whatever meditation theme, object we take, in the beginning often we're just using the technique, what we call panya, wisdom cultivating samadhi. 
we're thinking through using concepts but with the aim of developing more steadiness of mindfulness stillness of mind but using wisdom bring the mind to the point where it's still enough then just to look maybe without thinking anymore there's enough calm, enough stillness we can just observe observe pain arising, passing away observe our change of posture, observe our moods our thoughts even sense consciousness You're seeing, there's no self, no one who sees it's just seeing, arising hearing, tasting, smelling when mindfulness is improved then we can witness sense contact taking place without grasping at it or grasping at the different pleasures and pains that come with it we just notice it, oh it's like that seeing, hearing, tasting breaking through some of that self identity the attachment to it so all the candors start to become exposed. The more mindfulness we have, the more we still the mind, and the clearer this insight becomes. Obviously the frustration comes because we have stillness for a while and then it fades and we're back to square one. Often we feel like we can't meditate at all. We have to build up our effort again re-establish mindfulness, put effort into maintaining mindfulness and experience a bit more stillness and then the insight is clear again, we understand. But if you keep doing that, even though you go through periods where it seems like you can't meditate for a while, no peace, no stillness, no mindfulness, because of the contemplation, some of that insight, wisdom will stick little by little you're training the mind to see the true nature of things and this is how our path can develop how the mind can improve through the practice over time even though there's the frustration of the ups and downs some of this insight sticks and it brings automatic peace, relief from dukkha relief from suffering with it even if it's only a little bit of insight you know something you know more and more so less your mind wants to follow the way of delusion doesn't want to keep returning to old habits so much so you're undermining the hindrances and the different habits, mental habits views that support the hindrances When the mindfulness is strong and continuous, then things seem to flow very easily. I understand more what Lumpur Cha was saying about still flowing water. Is noticing the arising and ceasing of mental phenomena from stillness. And the mind has the stillness of mindfulness sati and samadhi but it's able to contemplate observe things arising, passing away without getting involved
So we have to keep coming back to this developing mindfulness so that we can experience the stillness of mind, the peace of mind, but all the different factors of the path support it. You know, the contentment with the requisites, following the Vinaya, developing the Brahma Viharas, appreciating Gaya Viveka, gives rise to Jitta Viveka, gives rise to Upati Viveka, seclusion from the defilements. So I'll leave you with these reflections tonight. <laughs>